Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. Wow. Do you remember the first show you saw of theirs and were, was your jaw just agape? It was. I. Uh... I had never seen anything like it. Uh, I've never been to a uh, to a show quite like that. Uh, it um, and it made me realize what a strong will George really has. I mean, uh, his uh, dominance over everything that had anything to do with uh, you know anything p-funk or related to bands and you know it was it was all him it was all his very interesting and uh we uh we we played some terrific shows uh, he played woodstock 99 in front of 180,000 people with a walk-on by bootsy that was pretty amazing so were you, yeah it, were, were you still associated with him up up through that oh well, there's a gap in between. I mean, it just got so, uh, we went our show, you know, hanging out with George, working with George can get pretty crazy. And I think it got to a point where we just wanted to walk away from each other. So we did, but then uh, maybe 14 or 15 years later, George was playing uh, the Roxy Theater in, uh, you know, in West Hollywood. So I went down there and when he heard I was in the audience, he ushered me backstage after the show. And that was the beginning of my reassociation with George when I became his manager. Uh, and then uh, that Woodstock 99 performance was the result of, of, uh, of that. So uh, I had two or three different periods of working with George, uh, which lasted anywhere from two to four to five years each. But on that last one, it, it got even so batshit crazy, even for me, that I had simply had enough. You know, it just got too crazy. So what, when did it come to its conclusion? Um, hmm. I guess in the late 90s. So right around the Woodstock time. Oh yes, I said Woodstock was not. Yeah, maybe a year after that, so maybe two thousand. But by then, I had other bands I was working with: Living Color. Uh, um, a lot less easier to deal with. That's for damn sure. 
Uh, I work with Mother's Finest. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to think of some. Well, I ended up ironically managing Vanilla Fudge for a few years after all of that. Uh, and uh, um, Brian Auger, I don't know whether you know who Brian Auger is. Oh, yeah, Bri a, the Oblivion Express. Yeah. Oblivion Express, terrific stuff. I, I managed Brian for about 20 years. Very funky in his own right, I got to tell you. And uh, that pretty much brings me up to now. Well, let me let me ask you about Bootsy. Uh, what was your first impression of him? And how much of the persona was the actual William Collins, do you think? Bootsy is a very complicated character. He, um, I realized that, uh, oh, there's a band called Kiddo in between all of this too with Donnie Sterling. In fact, Michael Hampton was Kiddo's guitar player. So there was, there were other areas that sort of overlapped a little too. That, that was A&M Records, I believe. So A&M Records, level. yep. <laughs> My, I had a buddy there, Tom Vickers, who worked for A&M Records and he, uh, he, uh, he helped get me that deal. And, okay, uh, Tom's been on the show. Good guy. Terrific guy. He's one of my very closest friends. He helped me get that deal, and we worked closely with Gerald Busby, who was the head of uh, Black Music at A&M at that time, who went on to become president of... Uh, uh, Motown. What, what is it? Motown, right? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Motown. Uh he, uh, my impression of Boosie was that he was a superstar. He was really, uh, uh, you could see he's just a really charismatic uh, type of artist that you just couldn't take your eyes off of him. You, uh, you know, he, uh, he's sort of a shy, reserved guy. You ever notice uh, sometimes these shy, reserved guys, when they're on stage, they're the complete opposite. They they live for that moment. They, uh, you know, I talk about. There's a prologue to my book, which opens up at, uh, uh, at Woodstock '99, as a matter of fact, and uh, George is playing in front of this massive crowd, and uh, there's about ten minutes left in the set, so the orange light goes on to tell the band you got ten minutes left, you know. And there's Bootsy behind the stack of amps, hiding behind a prop, fiddling with his amp, with his, uh, with his, you know, with his rig. And I'm going, God, get out there! You're going to miss the moment. And just when I'm about to really lose it, he looks over at me, gives me a wink, nods to his tech guy, kicks the prop out of the way, and there he is standing there. And the crowd goes absolutely nuts. And he sort of looks around and looks at the audience, gives him that big toothy smile of his. And then he funk walks his way to the front of the stage. And the crowd is just going nuts at this point, right? And pretending to be completely oblivious to the enormity of this incredible moment he leans his six and a half foot frame into the microphone and goes, uh, what's happening, y'all? 
And the crowd just goes berserk. And I said to myself, my God, what an entrance. What was I worried about? <laughs> that was a great moment. That was a really good moment. You know, David, I saw the rubber band in 78 at the LA Forum as a headliner. And that show was just mind-blowing. They were so tight and he was so charismatic. Yeah, he really was. And he had a bunch of great musicians. He had uh, Fred Wesley, Maceo Parker. Uh, what was that? Uh, Rick Wakeman, I think it was his name. Uh, Rick Gardner? Rick Gardner, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he... Uh, yeah, he had a great he had a great union a unit there. Uh, many of them were uh, ex James Brown uh, band members. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. I remember that show. They actually threw me out of the uh, they threw me out of the arena. It was at the, the Forum, right? That one was at the Forum. Yeah, Radio was the opening act uh, and Enchantment. Radio and Enchantment. Right, right. Yeah, I, I uh, actually was the agent for that gig, and I got into a fight with the promoter, and he, uh, they ended up, uh, he got the security to throw me out. And Claire Rothman, who was a friend of mine who actually was the, uh, the arena uh, manager, came outside and brought me back in and <laughs> got a couple of security guys to stand by me so that the promoter couldn't throw me out again. Wow. Lots of fun. Sounds like you need a chip on that one. <laughs> You're right. So there's lots and lots of stories. And I hope, uh, you know, people are interested in uh, checking out the book. They could go to uh, rockandrollwarrior.com and they could uh, order uh, the book from there. It's, it's a pre-order link. The book won't be out for another month or two. But if anybody orders at rockandrollwarrior.com, uh, they can get uh, an autographed copy. Nice. Um, what inspired you to to do the book after all this time? I had all of these stories and adventures. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot I haven't mentioned on, on the show. You know, I was also Sheila E's manager for a while and uh, was on the Purple Rain tour with her and Prince and Got to know Prince a little bit. That was pretty interesting. It was interesting talk, how talk, talk yeah. about another guy who's shy off stage and then crazy charismatic on stage. I know it's really unbelievable. He, you know, I was, I always talk about. Um, I compare him with Alice Cooper on a couple of different levels. Alice was almost a complete. You know, Alice. Uh, you know, like I say, he played golf with Perry Como. He loved going on Hollywood squares. Prince avoided those kinds of situations like it was the plague. And he ruled out of fear. Prince ruled out of fear. He just kept everybody, you know, on their toes and uh, didn't, um, you know, gave everybody a hard time, quite frankly. I can't complain. He was very nice to me. Maybe it was because... I was older than most of the people in his inner circle, and he knew of my association with George Clinton, somebody he really idolized, and uh, you know my uh, my history with Alice Cooper. So I suppose he didn't want to come off looking like a jerk to me, which is kind of cool because uh, uh, 
that he would, I think it's kind of cool that he would even, Prince would even care what I thought of him, but apparently he did. And he ruled out of fear. Alice Cooper ruled out of love. I mean, uh, nobody ever wanted to disappoint the guy. So everybody worked very, very hard for him to make sure nothing went wrong. They simply loved the guy. And that was kind of the difference between Alice Cooper and uh, Prince. But I like Prince. He's certainly one of the, was one of the most talented human beings I've ever met. Uh, uh, and uh, it was fascinating to watch him work. And Sheila too, Sheila's incredibly, you know, most people think of her as a percussionist, but she can play several other instruments, including a hell of a saxophone player. So uh, in, my, uh, in my career, I've got, gotten to work with some really incredibly talented people. Yeah, was there anything in particular that you ever saw Prince do that just really was kind of mind-blowing creatively? Um, he didn't wing it. You know, after every show on the Purple Rain tour, uh, every show was taped. And then back in his suite, he would, um, he would scrutinize the show. And he would make comments about, oh, why did I do that? This was a good thing. That was a bad thing. And you could see uh, with the pro progression of every show, he would make subtle li little changes, uh, you know, based on crowd reaction or how he felt it looked and that kind of thing. He didn't leave very much of the chance, you know. He he's not ad-libbing on stage. He knows exactly what the next thing is that he's going to do. It was fascinating to watch, actually. Such a student of the craft, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, during your time with uh, Clinton and Bootsy and all those guys, uh, did you work much with uh, guys like Archie Ivy? You mentioned Tom, uh, but Archie uh, was has been on the show. Jim Kellen's been on the show. Um, and worked very closely with Archie. I mean, he was really the conduit uh you know to george's world and my you know i was sort of considered half maggot brain half business guy archie was more 65 percent maggot brain 35 percent business guy but uh, archie was a really bright bright guy who uh, was always deeply concerned about preserving the integrity of who George Clinton was. I liked Archie, you know, we had our ups and downs. He was an easy guy sometimes, but I have great respect and admiration for Archie Ivey. He was, he was my go-to guy. Were you surprised when the whole thing kind of unraveled in the early eighties or did you think it was inevitable for P-Funk? Hmm. Well, I was his agent in the late 70s, 78, 79, 77. Those are very formidable years for him. He, uh, he was selling out arenas all over the country. And then Boosie went off on his own. He was selling out arenas. And then I put them together for stadium dates, I guess, in 79, um, that we called funk festivals. And, uh, there were other bands that we would add to the, to the lineup. Taste of Honey, Rick James, 
even Prince for the L.A. show, believe it or not. He wasn't very well known then, but uh, it was easy to see that he was he was something special. But right after, I guess you were out of that picture, like 81, right around there, it, it really unraveled, mm. you know, and uh, from the outside, it was kind of shocking how quickly it sort of came unglued after such an empire had been built up so quickly of P-Funk. Well, it was inevitable, at least from my perspective, I could see that just the way things were run from a business point of view, uh it uh it, it was it simply wasn't sustainable there were a lot of drugs there were a lot of uh crazy hustles going on uh the way george handled money i mean he was fortunate there was always money coming in because he was so prolific on so many levels but uh it wasn't run like a business in the in, in, in almost any sense so you knew at some point something was going to happen. Buy the book, see all the inside stories. Uh, absolutely. Um, oh, in '83, uh, I saw their show at the Beverly Theater, and similar to what you mentioned about Bootsy, he came out just for a very small segment of the show, doing Body Slam, and uh, the the roof just blew off that theater with excitement when he came out. Just for yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, re I remember that show. It was, uh, yeah, and, and Bootsy and George, they had sort of a hot and cold uh, relationship. That's for sure. Uh, you know, George liked to keep everybody under his thumb, but there were certain people that he simply couldn't. Bootsy was one of them. Uh, What's his name? Uh, Zap. What was his name? Roger Troutman. Roger Troutman. Yeah. That was another one. He wasn't going to take any crap from George. Whereas almost everybody else took all the crap George would hand out to them, you know. But there were a few that wouldn't and didn't. Maceo Parker is another one. They, uh, they weren't going to let that happen. Did you have much interaction with uh, Bernie Worrell? Yeah. I love Bernie. He, uh, he was a fascinating character. He was incredibly talented. He, uh, he was another one that had trouble remaining under George's auspices, you know. He, he, but he did more so than, let's say, Roger Troutman, because he saw the value of George and he also did some songwriting with George and, you know, but Bernie, uh, uh, you know, Bernie played with the, um, what's the name of the band? Uh, Talking Heads. Talking Heads, thank you. you. You must not be as old as I am because I sort of forget things, you know, I sort of forget things along the way. As soon as you mentioned it, I go, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and I liked his wife, Judy, Judy Worrell, and she was always looking out for uh, Bernie's best interests. And uh, yeah, I liked uh, Bernie very much and I miss him. I wish he was still here with us. Yeah, we lost him and Prince just months apart from each other. That's true. 
in the early 80s uh, when I did some things with Bootsy, George Kachadorian was his manager. Does that ring a bell? Do you know tour what manager? To yeah. What happened to him? I don't know. I um, I have no idea. He was the tour manager when I was the um, the booking agent. And so, you know, I dealt with George, you know, with the, that was a strange thing about you. I mean, I liked George and uh, uh, he was a very sociable guy and we got along well, but he was very, very protective of Bootsy. He didn't let anybody near Bootsy if he could help it, which is uncomfortable for me because sometimes I had to deal with Bootsy, you know, directly. But uh, other than that, he did a very, very good job. I mean, we talk about, George being very unbusinesslike. George Cachadorian was very businesslike. He uh, he ran a pretty tight ship. Did you ever think in a million years, David, that George Clinton would still be out on the road at eighty years old, doing doing the shows? No, I'm amazed he's still alive. But you know, uh, as crazy and as drug nuts as George was. These last several years, maybe the last 10 years, um, he doesn't do drugs at all. I never would have thought that was possible. But, you know, he's cleaned up his act. And uh, uh, I don't have a lot of interaction with him these days, but uh, I occasionally do. And every once in a while, I may speak to Archie Ivy about one thing or another. But, uh, yeah, I think he'll, he'll continue to uh, perform because uh, he loves it. And I don't see that stopping anytime soon. Did you ever cross paths with Sly Stone? Yes. Um, I, uh, when I was in The Happenings, we were a client of William Morris. Our agent, Al Marino, was also the responsible agent for Sly and the family Stone. So I got to know Sly. Um, that might have been... His show at Madison Square Garden might have been the best show I ever saw in my life. It was unbelievable. Um, and then later on, he and George became very good friends. And uh, that was a very, how can I put it? A very drug-influenced relationship. Those two guys were just really uh, off the charts with their drug usage. So by that time, George was, a, uh, in, uh, by that time, Sly was a completely different person, you know, so uh, uh, I didn't do a lot of hanging out with him at that point. <laughs> well, I can only imagine that what that Madison Square Garden show was like. That must have been incredible. I, it was unbelievable. It, I, it, I'm telling you, it was the, I've seen everybody. That might have been the best show I've ever seen in my life. From note one to the last note, it was just, just unbelievable. I saw Funkadelic at the Starwood in Hollywood in 1978 or 79, the anti-tour. The anti-tour, yes. the Brides of Funkenstein. And that was possibly the best show I ever saw. I was there. I remember that show. The anti-tour. You know what we say? Lieber, don't say tour. We don't use the word tour. It's not a tour. It's an anti-tour. All right. All right, Archie. Whatever you say. <laughs> I think that might have been the Brides of Funkenstein's debut at that show. 
I'm not sure, but it very well might have been. I'm, I'm just trying to. My mind's a blur. Hey, if I can't remember names, you can fill yeah. in the blanks. <laughs> well, like they like they say, if you remember it, you weren't really there, right? Something like that. <laughs> what about uh, just a word or two on Living Color? So, um, you know, I've seen them several times, going back to 1989, and um, Vernon Reed, incredible talent. Um, yeah. Is there anything about Living Color that you could share? They might have been the greatest live band that ever existed. I was just blown away. These are four very sophisticated, politically astute, fascinating characters, each and every, I mean, uh, I guess I'm closest and still am uh, with Will Calhoun, the drummer. Uh, he and I are really, really good friends and uh, he may be the best drummer in rock. I mean, uh, I, once, I once took uh, Carmine a piece to uh, a Living Color show. I said, so what do you think of Will Calhoun? He goes, what are you kidding me? There's nobody like him. So, uh, and uh, they're, uh, they were pretty unique on a lot of different levels. And uh, it was great working with them. I loved it. Uh, I managed them for about three years. Um, yeah, I have nothing but the, the greatest, uh, respect for their for their talent and the kind of people they are I, re I really like those guys it was a pleasure working with them which years were those david let's see uh, i think it started somewhere in 2000 and it went on to around 2003 maybe 2004 it's a blur it's still a blur <laughs> were you working with them when they played at the key club on sunset no okay i saw them that was one of the many shows i've saw them at the palace just so many different venues out there in la but um they were really not only were they great but they were super loud too their shows were incredibly unbelievably loud, loud but clear right i mean they did yeah. think i people told me that when they first heard them before i got involved with them years before um the sound was distorted. When I was managing them, the sound was as clear as a bell, loud as hell, but clear as the bell. So they think they, you know, they figured out the all the technical aspects of uh, how to sound good in person. They they took great strides to make sure that they sounded good. They didn't leave anything to chance. They were uh, they were good technicians too, besides being talented musicians. And they were just really good, all of them. I mean, just phenomenal musicians. And Doug Wimbish. What's that? And they're, they're still at it, too. So. They are still at it. They are. And I think they will be for, you know, for, for a long time to come. Well, I, I, I kind of resurrected, you know, they had broken up. And then I had been introduced to Will Calhoun by... Uh, uh mother's finest uh and uh and will and i talked about uh you guys ever think about getting back together and uh, he says yeah what's the while we talk about it i said well why don't you let me put a little 10-day run on the west coast sort of like a litmus test let's see what happens 
So somehow or other, we were able to get that together and uh, uh, almost every show sold out. I mean, there was still a huge demand to see Living Color and that uh, started them all you know, off again, uh, being together. So I feel kind of responsible for that, kind of cool. That is cool, very cool. What uh, might be one of the most memorable experiences you ever had, David, uh, being in a studio, seeing somebody at work? Hmm. Well, I haven't been in a studio with a lot of different artists. Uh, well, I, I, you know, um, I was in the studio when Mick Jagger was doing his solo album in L.A. For a couple of songs because he was using Will and uh, Doug Wimbish as musicians, as session mus musicians. And uh, I often wonder how does, how does Mick Jagger, after all he's accomplished and all that he's been, how does he maintain the same amount of enthusiasm or, or does he? when he's in the studio recording his umpteenth album. And the answer is, I was blown away by his uh, focus and his, um, I could see that he was loving it. He just loved, he loves what he does. I mean, it's obvious he loves being on stage, but I could also see that he loves the recording process as well. You know, he put everything he had into it. I mean, he was even doing a, you know, uh, while he was singing his, uh, uh, you know, his vocals. That was pretty impressive. That's pretty great. And from what I understand, just months months ago, they were on tour and he's keeping it up for, for two hours on stage still at 78 or whatever he is. Just incredible Yeah, uh, how he does it. Um, wow. And, you know, we talked about George Clinton still doing it. Keith Richards still be at it. It's pretty amazing, too. Well, according to science, he's clinically dead, so I'm not <laughs> sure that counts. Uh, one more uh, question I want to ask you was, uh, why do you think Kiddo uh, came to uh, uh, its end with a and What happened there? They just uh, failed to step up for that group or what? No. Um, the first single was a smash. Try my loving. Try my loving. It was a it was a uh, top 10 R&B hit. I think it got up to number one uh, on the R&B stations in L.A. I guess Gerald Busby and I have to take the blame for the demise of Kiddo because there was the second single, the follow-up single, was a sort of generic-sounding, sort of like the last one kind of single. That was a hit. And we failed for some reason or other to interpret the data correctly, which told us that thinking about your charms was a sort of a ballad, would have been a number one record if we had released it. Uh, but we didn't, we released the other one and that was pretty much the end of Kiddo. Listen, there's very few second chances in the music business. and. Uh, that was pretty much the end of Kiddo. Hmm. Well, look, David, I really appreciate the time. And uh, why don't you go ahead and, and 
promote the book one more time. Where can people get it? And you said it's going to be out uh, probably by end of April. Yeah, you can pre-order it right now. If you go to um, www.rockandrollwarrior, that's one big word, rockandrollwarrior.com. And you could uh, buy a book. Uh, and uh, I, uh, it'll be autographed uh, by me. And then I guess end of April, beginning of May, it'll hit everywhere, you know, uh, uh, and it'll be officially released. But you can still get the book right now uh, if you pre-order it on rockandrollwarrior.com or uh, go to Sunset Boulevard Books, Sunset Boulevard Records, the publisher. But it's easy to remember rockandrollwarrior.com, I think, because the name of the book is rock and roll warrior and uh i think anybody who's a, a george clinton fan p-funk fan bootsy i think you get a big kick out of it because there's uh there's a lot of cool stuff inside the book so hopefully you'll you'll get your copy outstanding really looking forward to it um best of luck with it thank you so much for sharing your stories and uh hopefully um you know you'll you'll achieve success with that and what are you doing anything else uh, to, to, to keep busy or are you just kind of. Um, well, ever since I'm sort of semi retired, which gave me the opportunity to write that book, no simple undertaking as I look at it in retrospect. Um, a lot of my time today is taking up as an animal rights activist. I. Um, uh, I'm, I'm involved with. Uh, a lot of different uh, organizations and shelters uh, uh, in our quest for finding foster uh, or, or permanent homes for for adoptable dogs. Uh, you know, there's a big need out there for that. I personally have, have three uh, dogs right now that I rescued that uh, uh, the love I get from these dogs and how I feel about them is immeasurable it, it's uh, so that's kind of and this is a good place to be out here in the in the high desert you know with the dogs they have a huge backyard sort of their turf more than it is mine there's a big doggy door so they can get, go in and out as they please um so i spend a lot of time uh doing that kind of things if anybody goes to my facebook page they'll see besides all the George Clinton and Alice Cooper stuff. There's, uh, um, I will post from time to time dogs uh, uh, looking for homes. So uh, that's how a lot of my time is uh, expended these days. Of course, George Clinton very into dogs also with Atomic Dog, and then he did a bunch of kind of sequels to Atomic Dog. So, wow, 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 yippee, oh, yippee, <laughs> Before I let you go, David, I got to ask you about some of those uh, records on the wall, if I could. I think I can see on the one side, it looks like Bootsy Player of the, Player of the Year. Is that right? Yep. There's a lot of George Clinton, Bootsy, Vanilla Fudge, Alice Cooper. Uh, what else we got up here? Living Color, Funkadelic. Um, yeah, let's hope I don't have to smelt them down someday, Scott. 
Oh, very cool. Um, all right, outstanding. Good to uh, get to know you better. And uh, I will, of course, let you know when this is posting and you can share it how you please. So uh, but I look forward to seeing the book. Thank you very much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Enjoyed okay. it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkandstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkandstuff.net, and linking through funkandstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven, results-oriented, professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the media services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Wolfine saying, keep on keep vibing, on vibing to the rhythm of the one.